So let's um, continue on Jesus and the Jewish festivals. Uh, we're going to spend three weeks. This is the middle of the three weeks in John chapter 7. Uh, in John 7, 8, and 9, uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem. This is a little bit of a review. Jesus is in Jerusalem celebrating the festival of Sukkot. Uh, Sukkot, we, we've talked about several times. We talked about Sukkot when we uh, talked about um, Leviticus 23, we, when we introduced ourselves to all of the uh, biblical Jewish festivals. Uh, and then I did a little bit with Sukkot last week. But let me do a little bit this week to, as we get back into John chapter 7. Uh, again, seven biblical festivals. You know that. Um, those are the festivals, the Jewish holidays, holy days, that um, you, you find scattered throughout the, the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, they're all presented in Leviticus 23. We looked at Leviticus 23 when we started back in September. Uh, of the seven festivals, you have spring festivals, and then you have fall festivals. Uh, they end with Sukkot, um, and it's the most joy-filled, most exciting of all the festivals. It occurs in the latter part of September, early part of October. It's tied to both the um, um, harvest, uh, because again, September, October, harvest is coming in. It's tied to harvest. In the uh, religious mindset of the Jewish people, it um, Passover in the spring celebrates uh, the freedom leaving Egypt, and then that, that's followed in like 50 days by uh, Shavuot, or what we call in the Greek English uh, Pentecost. That that celebrates uh, they're in the wilderness. That celebrates where uh, Moses receives the. Uh, law at Sinai, but then uh, Sukkot, which is at the end of the year, uh, September to October, that celebrates uh, or remembers their wilderness wandering. And that's why we've talked about it several times. During, is, Sukkot is called Sukkot because Sukkah means booth or tabernacle or shelter. Uh, and they still do that in the Jewish tradition, if, particularly if you're Orthodox, uh, you celebrate Sukkot by the uh, creation of that um, a little three-walled temporary structure. Uh, you build it uh, on your porch or your balcony or your backyard or your roof or whatever, yeah, and you, and you uh, at least take your meals in it for the seven or eight days, and it does depend on where you're at in the world, but seven or eight days of Sukkot, and uh, we're, we're going to eventually see the, the last and great day of Sukkot in the life of Jesus. Um, but you, you take your meals in those Sukkot, uh, those booths. Uh, if your children are energetic, they may get you to spend the night out there in those Sukkot. You need to be able to look up through that shelter uh, look up through the branches that roof the top of the shelter and see the stars. Uh, but it reminds them of their wilderness wandering, which what it really reminds them is how God took care of them in their wilderness wandering. So the festival of Sukkot is, is a joy-filled festival that reminds them of how God provides. 
and God provided for those 40 years. So the whole joy-filled festival of Sukkot in Judaism uh, reminds them of God's provision, God's protection, God's presence. We talked a little bit last week about the Shekinah glory, uh, the, the, the manifestation of God's presence with the glory of God being made present. Uh, through the uh, pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. We looked a little bit last week of how that manifest presence of God entered the tabernacle, then it entered uh, the temple. Uh, then in Ezekiel, we have a vision of it leaving the temple. Uh, that manifest presence of God comes back in the person of Jesus because in Jesus, God tabernacled, God sukkoted. I just made up a verb. God sukkoted <laughs> in Jesus. Um, so all of those themes are mixed up in the festival uh, of Sukkot. So what we see, and Jesus was an observant Jew. I'm, I know it's been a while, so I'll repeat it. Every, t- every time I take a group to the Holy Land, after about two days, somebody will walk up to me rather sheepishly and say, so Jesus was a Jew. And I'll say, yeah. Um, he lived and died a faithful Jew an observant Jew. All the earliest Christian followers were Jewish. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who came in fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures to the Jewish people. And thanks to people like Paul, you and I get to participate now as Gentiles. But um, uh, Jesus was an observant Jew. So you see, just like in the Christmas story and following the Christmas story. You see Mary and Joseph in the temple. You see Mary and Joseph uh, fulfilling the uh, purification ritual for Mary. You see them offering uh, a sacrifice uh, as they celebrate the uh, dedication of the firstborn son. So particularly like in Luke's gospel, chapters first and chapters one and two, uh, right after, right before, and right after the birth of Jesus in Luke's gospel, you, you really do see them uh, very strongly observing their Jewish faith. They're in Jerusalem, uh, so that doesn't surprise as it happens throughout the gospels. John's gospel, probably a little more so than the others, uh, loves to paint the picture of Jesus over against these Jewish festivals because John's gospel is the one that really wants us to understand Jesus is the fulfillment of these Jewish holidays. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that went on, all that was prophesied before Jesus came. Uh, Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. Um, So in John 7, 8, and 9, chapter 7, 8, and 9, you see one of the accounts and we've already looked at Jesus celebrating Passover. We looked at Jesus uh, when he's in Jerusalem in chapter 10. He's celebrating Hanukkah. Um, in chapter 7, 8, and 9, he's in Jerusalem, heads to Jerusalem eventually, to celebrate Sukkot. Um, so last week, we started out, after we introduced ourselves to the Feast of Booths, we made it through the beginning verses of um, chapter 7. We saw that the brothers of Jesus, there at the beginning of chapter 7, who do not yet believe in the full deity of Jesus, uh, they, don't, they don't believe in Jesus, to use John's words. Uh, they, they, um, they head off to Jerusalem from the Galilee. They're up in the north in the Galilee. They head off from uh, the Galilee region down to Jerusalem for Sukkot. They, in, they encourage Jesus to go, but you saw that Jesus did not go. He let his brothers go. 
And then what you saw happen in chapter 7 is uh, Jesus waits a little while, and then Jesus uh, heads off. He heads off uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate. I'm still not sure completely why he sort of played with his brothers, taunted his brothers, sort of told his brothers he wasn't going, at least yet, was not going. He let them go. But then he does head south for that journey. He does head south, and eventually he shows up in Jerusalem. Uh, we know he's there, according to the text. He's there by the middle of the seven- or eight-day festival. So we're going to pick up. I look at verse 10. We're going to pick up of chapter 7. We're going to pick up where the brothers have already gone. Um, Jesus remained in, in, in the Galilee, but he's going to head there. So look at verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, and again, you know, you always go up to Jerusalem from anywhere in, in, in the Holy Land. Uh, geographically, you always go up to Jerusalem. It's about 2,500 feet above sea level. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Uh, you can still ask him one day why. I, I, I don't think it's really clear why he's doing this. Uh, he might have enjoyed his family about as much as I enjoy some of my family. He might have sent them on ahead. He might have enjoyed the trip by himself. Uh, Tammy always says, I, I do like to listen to tapes and CDs when I'm traveling. So if anybody else is in my car, it sort of crimps my style a little bit. Um, anyway, that's what he does. His brothers go, but then he also goes up in private, it says. Look at verse 11. The Jews, and again, it's the Judean religious leaders. The Judean religious leaders were looking for him at the feast. You've already seen in John's gospel, they're after Jesus. They, they want to do away with Jesus. So uh, they, they know Jesus, and they know he's, chances are strong, he's going to show up for the festival of Sukkot. So the Judean religious leaders in Jerusalem are looking for him at the feast. And they're saying, where is he? Verse 12 and there was much muttering about him among the people. Um, we, we are well into the public ministry of Jesus at this point, so he's, he's making a name for himself. In the Galilee, life was always good. People loved him. He spent 80% of his ministry in the Galilee, up on the northwest quadrant corner quarter of the Sea of Galilee. Life was good in the Galilee. Down around headquarters in Jerusalem and Judea, um, not so good. He was always the center of controversy there. So these people who have um, been very agitated about Jesus, these Judean religious leaders, they, uh, they're looking for him. Where is he? And again, we know that they're not looking for him, wondering where he's at because they want to you know, enjoy his company. Uh, they want to trap him. They want to do away with him. Uh, verse 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, and here you see the division, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Um, from the time Jesus was born through today, he's always been a matter of division. We know that. We know that from human history. He's been the matter of division. Remember, that's what Simeon said to Mary and Joseph in the temple when Jesus is about eight days old. Uh, Simeon says he's going to cause the rising and the fall of many in Israel. 
And then he looked at Mary and said, and the sword's going to pierce your soul also. So um, Jesus has always been a center of controversy. Jesus divides the human family. You know, um, I encourage you to make sure you know which side you're on. Uh, but from the coming of Jesus through today, he's divided the human family. Jesus said at one point, I have not come to bring peace, but I've come to bring a sword. I didn't make it up. He said it. He came and he brought division. Uh, you see it, and you see it in the world today. So, uh, so, yeah, some people say he's a good man. Others say, no, he's dangerous. He's leading people astray. Verse 13, yet for the fear of the Judean religious leaders... No one spoke openly of him. Because, again, they're in Jerusalem. They're in the, if you're in Jerusalem, you're in the temple precinct, basically, or you're right outside the temple precinct. So verse 14, about the middle of the feast. About the middle of the feast. Uh, the feast is seven days in, in, in the Holy Land, eight days outside of the Holy Land. One of the reasons the feast is eight days outside of the Holy Land is to make sure that you don't mess your calendar up and somehow get your date off. If you do eight days, and you're sure you've got the seven days covered. Uh, so that's what happens outside the Holy Land, seven days in the Holy Land, except maybe by the time of Jesus, they may have added an, an eighth great day uh, to, to wrap up the, um, the festival. And we'll, we'll look at that when we finish looking at this section. Uh, next week. Anyway, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. Again, if you know the geography of the temple, there's the building proper of the temple, um, and then there's lots of courtyards. And it's, it's, a, huge, it's a huge area. Uh, the temple that's being referred to here is what, what today, if you were in, if you were in uh, Jerusalem, everything on top the temple mount, which today is a Muslim shrine and a Muslim mosque, everything on top the temple mount is where the temple would have sat and where you'd have courtyards, like courtyard, courtyards of the Gentiles, which everybody could go into, courtyard of the women, which women, Jewish women could go into, um, uh, courtyard of the Israelites, which was for Israelite men. So you have a lot of open space up there on top of, of the Temple Mount uh, where the temple proper sits. So Jesus would gather, this was typical of a lot of teachers, he would gather up there in the courtyard, in the court areas, or um, we like to think, we say, he could have gathered like on the steps leading up to the temple, um, for those of you that have traveled with me, we've sat on the temple steps and we've studied on the temple steps. Uh, we know that that was a popular place for first century teachers to teach. But in that, that whole, in that whole uh, precinct or vicinity of the temple, uh, a lot of people would have been gathering, talking, fellowshipping. Uh, Jesus up there teaching. You see them, by the way, you see the early Christian community continuing this practice in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Even after the Resurrection Sunday, after the gift of the Holy Spirit, you see them gathering uh, in, the, in Solomon's portico. You see them gathering in the temple precinct uh, for fellowship and for study. Verse 15, the Judean religious leaders therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? Well, they're watching. They're listening. Again, not to be edified or to enjoy his company, but we know enough from the Gospels to know that they're watching and listening. They want to catch him doing something. 
they want to trap him saying something wrong, particularly against the temple or against uh, the law of Moses. But they're watching, and you notice their concern. How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? And what they mean by that is not that he hasn't attended yeshiva, or Jewish seminary, uh, there wasn't such in the first uh, century. But um, what you would have done in the first century is you would have attached yourself to a prominent rabbi. Uh, that's the way you would have learned. Like Jesus' disciples have done with him, he would have done the same thing early on. You attach yourself to a rabbi as a uh, Talmudine, as disciples of the rabbi, and that's where you learn. You know, if you're, if you're really sharp, maybe Gamaliel will let you participate. Or Hillel. Paul, that's what Paul did with Gamaliel. Yeah, if you can get you a really good rabbi, that, that helps your status. But somehow you attach yourself to a rabbi and you become a disciple of the rabbis. Rabbis always taught, by the way, sitting down. We see that throughout the New Testament. Well, they, they never knew Jesus to be attached to any rabbi. And that's why there's always that question about Jesus. How does he know this stuff? Where did he learn this stuff? He speaks, and this is a quotation from the Gospels, he speaks as someone who has authority. And he doesn't have the right credentials. Well, we've read the whole book, so we sort of know where he gets this stuff from. But they're watching, and they're fascinated that he is as intelligent, because he's not credentialed. He's never, he's never formally studied. He's never been attached to a rabbi. Uh, he has never studied. Uh, by the way, I also think Joseph and Mary did a really good job with the little Jesus um, when he was growing up as far as teaching him the Hebrew faith. Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, and I'm sure this made them real excited. So, he says, my teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. He is who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my, on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Uh, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keep the law? I'm sure that sat really well with them. <laughs> yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Uh, that's typical language from John's gospel. He's, he's always saying to the folks, yeah, I w I've been sent, and the one who sent me taught me. My authority is not my authority. It's the authority that belongs to the one who sent me. I mean, throughout John's gospel, he, he is claiming as boldly as he can this unique relationship to God. And again, the more he does that, the more they're determined to get, do away with him. And that's why he can, go, he can go on like that. And then he ends with, oh, by the way, why do you seek to kill me? I mean, it's obvious, um, you know, and, and what, by the way, you know how the story ends. They find him somewhere away from the crowds in the middle of the night in order to arrest him because he had a following. He had a following, and the Judean religious leaders weren't always the best-loved people in Jerusalem. Um, that's why, you know, they have to figure out a way, but they find someone who will help them. They have to figure out a way to get to him late at night when no bells is around and, and there's no crowds. There's nobody that's liable to step up and protect them or side with them. But it's obvious they, they want to kill him. They just have, they can't do it in the midst of all this crowd up on the temple precinct. Plus, if they were to try to arrest them, that could create a um, disturbance. 
and the Romans who ruled this territory did not like you creating disturbances, regardless of the reason. So they, they held off doing anything there during, during the daylight at the temple precinct. Um, but everybody knows what they want. Why do you seek to kill me, he says, verse 19. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Again, you either are with him or you're not. You either think he's of God or he's not. Uh, this is not the only place in the gospel where, um, and this is interesting, he is accused of having a demon. Um, his enemies accuse him of having a demon. Now, one of the fascinating things about that, I think, is that um, that pretty well displays that he was working miracles and, and supernatural activity. Because uh, even if I say you've got a demon, I'm acknowledging you're doing some pretty powerful stuff. You're just doing it as a result of the enemy instead of as a result of God. So they all, they, they're almost, they're, they're at least acknowledging he has power. He's been doing some powerful things. He's going to talk about that in a moment. He's been doing some powerful things. They, they've seen him do supernatural things. They just don't want to give him credit. They don't want to give God credit. So they say, you, you've got a demon. Um, who is seeking to kill you? At that point, it sounds like they're trying to pretend he's paranoid. But he's right. They're seeking to kill him. Uh, you've got a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Uh, you know what that one work is. It's already occurred. It occurred in the fifth chapter. All of the other miracles in John's gospel up to this point have occurred in the Galilee, such as, well, this coming Sunday is uh, uh, the uh, wedding at Cana of Galilee and the turning water into wine, but such as that miracle. All of his miracles in John's gospel up to this point have been in the Galilee, except the one that you saw in chapter 5, where the lame man at, at, at the pool of Bethesda. And uh, we, remember, we looked at that. We talked about maybe it was an Asclepion. Maybe it was a pagan temple. Whatever reason, he went in there, and he healed the person who had been trying to be healed for 38 years. So he did that miracle um, in, in Jerusalem. That's the one he's referencing here uh, when he said, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. So he's saying, you, you've, you've seen me work. You, you've seen what I can do. Um, then verse 22, but of course, you remember the story. They got after him for healing on the Sabbath. The religious, Judean religious leaders got after him for healing on the Sabbath. Um, you'd think they would have been glad he healed somebody who had been lame for 38 years on the Sabbath. But again, they just want to trap him and find him doing something contrary to the law of Moses and their tradition. Um, but he said, I did one work, and, and, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. Uh, circumcision predates Moses. You, you, you read about circumcision all the way back to Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And they do. They do. That is a work that is really far less than healing someone. You'd think far less significant from healing someone. But uh, uh, the Jewish tradition, the rabbis, will, will do a circumcision if it falls on a Sabbath. So he's just toying with them a little bit and saying, you know, you, you, you do some things too on the Sabbath. You, you circumcise on the Sabbath. Uh, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, 
Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I, I made a man's whole body well? Uh, yeah, you'd think they would have been happy and excited by that. He healed a man who had been uh, an invalid for 38 years. But, but again, you know, hatred does weird things to you. And these people that hated Jesus, he, he could have never done anything right. Um, he, he, they would never have given him credit for doing anything right. And they wouldn't have. Um, but they circumcise. They circumcise on the Sabbath. And nobody, nobody makes an issue of that. Verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Um, do you hear what he's saying there? That, that's a really nice way of saying, don't be so stupid. Um, I'm a little surprised he didn't just say, don't be so stupid. But he said, you know, do, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Yeah, instead of telling somebody they're stupid, say, judge with right judgment. But um, um, they understood what he was saying. I, I, I mean, he just makes them look bad. These Judean religious leaders, he makes them look bad um, on so many different levels. Okay, let's keep going. Um, again, you, you see this almost turmoil that he's creating there. And maybe that's why he's a little late showing up. He wanted them to have a little bit of Sukkot before he came to town and um, became the center of attention. Because of the hatred of the Judean religious leaders, he, he just always seemed to be the center of attention uh, because they, they so hated him. They so wanted to get rid of him. Look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Again, they, they know what's going on. It's, it's in the air. They, they sense it. Is not this the man they seek, whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Uh, so these people are watching this debate. probably too light of a term here, the debate between Jesus and the Judean religious leaders. They're watching. They're listening. And, um, and they know who wins the debate. They know who seems to have the better, the better case. And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Um, the authorities here uh, is probably the Sanhedrin, the ruling council there, uh, that, that, that body of sort of their, their Supreme Court, the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, the religious authority there in Jerusalem. Uh, they really ruled things as much as Rome would let them rule things. And so now the crowd's thinking, well, maybe they know he's the Christ, but they just don't want him to be the Christ. Um, you know, there will be people in the world that when Jesus decides to return to bring about the completion of the kingdom of God in this world, there'll be people in the world who will say, no, I prefer my own kingdom. Don't mess with my kingdom. I've got my own plans. So don't let God or anything else interfere with my plans. So they begin the crowd, uh, and on lots of occasions, the, the, the Judean religious leaders, and part of it was they were living in such great wealth because they were in cahoots with the Roman authorities. Uh, the Judean religious leaders, a lot of the common people did not uh, feel warmly about some of the Judean religious leaders. So they even are questioning what's, what's going on here. You know, may they, may, they, may, they, may they really know he's the Christ, and somehow 
uh, these Judean religious leaders. There is a great, have many of you ever read, um, I'll be real impressed, I know some of you have because you did it with me, Dostoevsky, greatest novel ever written, uh, The Brothers Karamazov. We did it here a few years ago. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. So there's, there's the Grand Inquisitor. There's a, there's a scene in that novel from the 19th century where Jesus shows up in front of one of the bad popes. All popes have not been bad. But uh, uh, Jesus shows up in front of one of the bad popes, and the bad pope, and Jesus never speaks in the scene. And you can see a, a, a dramatic, you can just Google and see a dramatic presentation of this. Jesus never speaks. He's just there in front of the grand inquisitor. Who's, who's, who's acting on behalf of the church and acting on behalf of the, the bad pope at that point. And anyway, so the grand inquisitor is going on and on and on and on. Jesus is just listening. And the grand inquisitor is saying stuff like, you know, you're really messing my life up. I mean, you're really just making things complicated. You're making people ask the wrong questions. You make people like the poor more than they like the church. Anyway, the Grand Inquisitor's going on and on, sounding absolutely foolish and ridiculous and stupid. And it's the church attacking Jesus, that Jesus somehow was making the church's job too difficult. Um, it's a fact, go Google it sometime. You watch a presentation. Google the Grand Inquisitor, and I bet that's what will pop up from Dostoevsky. Um, yeah, I mean, and and it's a it's a fair, it's a whole chapter in the book. So the Grand Inquisitor goes on for quite a length, um, trying to make his key case about Jesus quit making life difficult for your church. You know, um, don't don't make life difficult for us. You know, um, people might if you if you talk too much Jesus, they might. They might wonder why we have, you know, such beautiful buildings and why we're not taking care of the poor. Anyway, it goes on and on and on. So that's sort of what's going on here. The crowd starts not even, um, they, they start questioning the, the religious authorities. They, they're not sure what's going on because they don't really know who to believe. They kind of like this Jesus. They, they don't see anything wrong with this Jesus. They've seen this Jesus heal an invalid who is sick for 38 years or invalid for 38 years. So they're questioning um, their, their religious leadership here. Verse 27, but we know where this man, this is interesting, but we know where this man comes from and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Well, you know better than that, right? Evidently what we hear here, what we see here is there must have been some ideas in the first, I mean, there, a lot of people were looking for messiahs in the first century. There were lots of uh, messianic pretenders uh, in the first century. Well, there must, and, and people had, people wrote volumes and spoke volumes about the Messiah because they needed deliverance in the first century. Again, Rome was ruling. Their religious leaders were ruling in not really great ways. So a lot of people were praying and yearning for um Messiah. Remember Simeon back to the temple after the birth of Jesus? When Simeon gets the baby Jesus, he says, you know, Simeon who's been looking for the consolation, the coming of the Messiah his whole life. And somehow Simeon had been told he would not die till he saw the Messiah. And that's why he's holding the baby Jesus. Simeon says, now, now I can die, God, because I've, I've seen the Messiah. A lot of people are looking for the Messiah in the first century. And, um, and we have lots of literature besides the New Testament. And there was some literature out there that said when the Messiah 
comes. He will just appear. We won't know where he's kind of like, you know, beam me down, Scotty, beam me up, Scotty. We won't know where he's come from. He'll just appear. So evidently there were people who said that. Now, um, you know, even Herod's sidekicks knew better because when the wise men went to Herod and they said, where is this Messiah to be born? Um, the sidekicks were right. Remember, they go back to the book of Micah. They read the book of Micah. And the book of Micah from the Hebrew Bible said he'll be born in, in Bethlehem, Ephrata, least of the clans, but he'll be, bab he'll be born in Bethlehem. So, yeah, they should have known where he was coming from. But, you know, um, sometimes, sometimes even Methodists don't get their theology right. They, they, they may know more what their grandmother told them than what we really teach. But anyway, so there's some talk around the first century that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah's going to be so uh, amazing. He's just going to appear, you know, glow like... What was that lady's name in Touched by an Angel? I love that show. And y'all are old enough to remember it. What was her name? You know I'm talking about. Touched by an Angel, the female angel. I, I used to listen to her. Mon is it Monica? Monica. You know how she'd start glowing at some point? And you knew it was a good thing she's glowing? Well, you know, there people said all sorts of things about the Messiah. He may just appear... Anyway, so evidently there was, some, there was some talk that when the Messiah came, he'd be so mysterious, we wouldn't know where he came from. So notice what happens here, verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, uh, you know me, blah, 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 blah. Um, when, when, well, look at 27. No one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I come from. Now that's even interesting. Because if you'd have pulled people off the street in Jerusalem on this day and said, where is he from? Chances are they would have said, where? Galilee. Probably Galilee. That's where he's lived for 30 years up in the Galilee. They may not know that little bit about, well, he happened, mom and dad were on a field trip and they happened to be born in Bethlehem. Because um, all they know is he's Galilean. His, his disciples are Galilean, except for Judas. His disciples are Galilean. So, um, yeah, they, they're confused even where he's from. And that, that's why I said, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Again, he's saying some hard things to these people. They, they don't even know this one who has sent him. They don't know God. Uh, verse 29, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, and no one laid a hand on him. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Remember, you hear that in John's Gospel. Like when Mary goes up to um, Jesus in Cana of Galilee, the wines run out, and Mary goes to him and says, uh, Help me out here, Jesus. And Mary says, you know, woman, what do we have to do with this stuff? My hour has not yet come. Uh, in, the, in the Gospel of John, that my hour has not yet come means uh, the hour of his glorification, which is uh, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, that package deal of Holy Week. Uh, because eventually he will say, my hour has come. But at this point, he's still saying, my hour has not yet come. Um, then verse 31 um, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Uh, well, they've only seen one, but they've heard of more 
from up in the Galilean region. So there, you know, some of the more reasonable, open-minded people are saying he may be a good contender for Messiah. If you just don't make your mind up in advance, he cannot be that. Uh, and there is debate going on here about where he is from, because um, I can understand they would be confused. Because he looks Galilean. His disciples are Galilean. The base of his um, ministry is in the city of Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee up north. Um, yeah, but he, what? he's not Galilean. He belongs to them. He is Judean. He was born in Bethlehem. He's of the house of David. So they're all a little confused about where he comes from. Um, but they're, they're trying to figure it out. Uh, again, that... The world hasn't changed a lot. There's still people trying to figure him out. Uh, again, there's still people very divided over who he is. I, I hope you know who he is. I hope you've allowed the Bible to figure him out for you. Um, yeah, he has always divided the human family in half. I don't think it's actually half, but he's divided the human family. He's divided the human family. So um, John's gospel keeps, keeps presenting this to you. Better figure out who he is. Because to not choose is to choose. To not choose is to choose. You're either with him or you're against him. You're either with him or you're on the side of these Judean religious leaders. Who then eventually gets, they get the Romans to be on their side. Here's a good place to stop because when we get to verse 32. From verse 32 through verse 39. From verse 32 to verse 39, he's going to do something on, on the last great day of the festival of Sukkot. And what he does is pretty amazing, pretty remarkable. What he says is pretty amazing, pretty remarkable. But it really is if you know what's going on when he does it and he says it. And you're told it's on the last day of the feast, the great day. And he's going to do something to create a huge disturbance on that day. He's going to say something in regards to that day um, that's, that's rather audacious. Um, so we'll hold that off to next week. So um, this is a good place to stop.